following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. When you're wearing the right outfit, it feels good. Like good hair day kind of good. Phone charge to 100% good. Getting dressed can feel just like that when you have a Trunk Club stylist. Because not only do we send you lots of outfits and accessories, we also teach you how to style them. And since we're a Nordstrom company, you know you'll be well taken care of. Look and feel great every single day with Trunk Club. Meet your personal stylist at trunkclub.com. That's T-R-U-N-K-C-L-U-B.com. So far this century, 50% of the Fortune 500 companies have disappeared from the planet. They've all become Xerox, Kodak, Westinghouse. I mean, where are they? Next will be GE. GE is about to vaporize into thin air. Um, I think IBM is at risk. But we look at these companies like Tesla. And what's Tesla? AI and IoT on wheels. And, you know, it's absolutely upending the automotive business. I don't know what the future of Tesla is. I don't know whether Tesla will be a successful company or not. But it will most certainly transform the automotive industry. And companies that don't adopt that model, they're gone. Welcome to the Forbes interview. I'm your host, Steve Bertoni. On this show, I'll do in-depth interviews with billionaires, entrepreneurs, and influencers. Today we have serial entrepreneur and technology titan Tom Siebel, who is the founder and CEO of C3 IoT. It's just his second billion-dollar company that he started. Tom, welcome to the show. Good morning. So I have a problem that when I hear IoT, my brain kind of just shuts off. What is the Internet of Things? In, in kind of explain to me like I am a, your 12-year-old nephew. Internet of Things is a very important technology vector that's happening in the 21st century. And it has to do, and most people think of it, associated with the censoring of value chains, say the grid. And, you know, an example of the, this is a power grid. This would be a very familiar example mm-hmm. where people are familiar with a smart meter and a electromechanical meter that we all grew up with would be one that has an analog number on it, digits on it. And people would, um, uh, analog dial on it or digits and uh, somebody would drive by once a month with a truck to write down the number. Yeah, the old meters. Well, with a smart meter, it has a computer processor and memory and communication capability so that every 15 minutes it communicates its state so you can remotely sense its state in real time. Mm-hmm. So generally th- people think about the Internet of Things if this is a phenomenon where we're censoring value chains, aerospace, retail, uh, healthcare, travel, transportation, so that all of the devices in the value chain become remotely machine addressable. Going back to the grid example, <clears throat> the grid is the power grid is the largest, most complex machine ever built. Mm-hmm. And at the beginning of this century, 21st century, it um, was largely as designed by George Westinghouse and Thomas Edison at the turn of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Now we have this thing that's going on called the smart grid, where all of the devices in the great infrastructure, hundreds of billions of devices, transformers, substations, reclosers, capacitance, space, what have you, are all being upgraded so that all of the devices are remotely machine addressable. Now that is IoT impacts the grid. Mm-hmm. Now the amount that's being spent on upgrading just that value chain this decade worldwide is $2 trillion. Just on the grid itself? Just the grid. Wow. 
and just taking a moment to thank our supporters, Veridesk, Amica Insurance, and Rocket Mortgage. More about these companies later in the show. Now, so far this century, we've installed about uh, 19 billion of these sensors across value chains. Okay, in five years, we'll have 50 billions of these sensors installed. Now, I've given this a lot of thought, and I, and I don't think it really is about sensors. I think that IoT is about a change in the form factor of computers. So going back to, say, the middle of the 20th century, computers used to be, take, used to occupy, you know, great rooms in, at MIT where they had gears and mm-hmm. machinery and levers, and they were large calculators. Then we built, at, at University of Pennsylvania, we built computers with uh, vacuum tubes, and then IBM and others developed affordable mainframe computing, and then mini computing, and then personal computing, and then we go to cloud computing. What IoT is about is a change in the form factor of computers, where computers cost pennies, Mm -hmm. and everything is a computer. I mean, let's let's think. The smartphone in your pocket represents a billion dollars worth of computing power in 1970. That's crazy. Now, going forward, as we power into the 21st century... Everything is a computer. Eyeglasses, refrigerators, pool pumps, watches, um, uh, you know, all the, all the devices on aircraft. And we have 50 billion of these devices. They're all computers. They all have processing capacity. They all have storage. And they all have communication capacity. They are computers. They cost, but hmm. they cost pennies. So kind of like in the, in the last century how everything got at least a wire or got a battery. Now it's almost everything's getting a computer. Everything is a computer, has a computer embedded in it. Now, when you apply, you'll remember that everybody knows about Moore's Law, and, and many people know about Metcalf's Law. You know, Bob Metcalf was a, was a scientist at Xerox Park. He embedded this thing called Ether, Ethernet. turned out to be pretty useful. Yes. He discovered that if you networked these computers together, they became you know, increasingly powerful machines. That was game-changing in college because I went from my the dial-up computer in my uh, parents' basement to getting the college had Ethernet, and it was like lightning fast. It was incredible. And you're, and you're right. He invented Ethernet, yeah. and that later became 3Com. Now, in Metcalf's Law, so Bob hypothesized that, uh, or coined this thing called Metcalf's Law, that said the power of the network is a function of the square of the number of devices connected. Okay, now fast forward to, say, the next five years, we have 50 billion IoT devices out there. Mm -hmm. That's 50 billion computers connected to humans, connected to communication devices, connected to aircraft, connected to automobiles, connected to everything. And this is a fully connected network of 50 billion things. Well, this is order of 10 to the 22nd. This is this is ten to twenty two zeros behind it, right? This is this is a powerful system. So so so. IoT is fundamentally about a change in the form factor and power and exponential growth in the power of computing. So this is definitely a broad question, but you know, fast forward five years from now, when all these sensors are full in play, how does that change our lives on like a daily basis? And I'm sure it changes everything, but like what kind of improvements are you excited to see? Well, it, it makes a, first of all, let me talk first at the theoretical level. Yeah. And then at the practical level. At the theoretical level, it changes um, the fundamental nature of computing. Historically, due to 
the cost of computing and the limitations of processing power and the limitations of storage, we computed, we basically performed computations on sample sets. We take mm-hmm. random samples, okay, do computations on those samples, then use statistics. We'd apply statistics, figure out what our confidence levels were, and infer results. Now with IoT and, importantly, Elastic Cloud Computing, um, computers are free. We have basically infinite computing capacity and infinite storage capacity. And with all of this censoring of these value chains, the amount of data is growing at a staggering rate. Mm-hmm. So we have this phenomenon of, called big data. And big data is frequently confused with a lot of data. Yeah. So big data is that's not what big data is about. Big data is not about the fact that you know a terabyte is more than a megabyte. Or, uh, uh, big data is about the fact that with IoT and with the cloud, we have no sampling error. We have all of the data. You have all the samples. There is no sample. We have, we have a complete data set, whether this is about a biological system, say the human body, or whether it's about a 7-7 wide body Boeing 777. We have all of the data. So... You, so this enables AI. This enables predictive analytics. This, this enables when there's no sampling error, you can do things that you never could do before. So you have this field called predictive analytics, which is all about AI, machine learning, and deep learning, where we're able to solve problems that were never solvable. So what does that mean for us? Yeah. I think what will be the biggest impact? The biggest impact will be precision medicine. Precision, no question, you know, the, the largest application of artificial intelligence and IoT will be in healthcare. With precision medicine, we'll have very, very accurate pre- disease prediction. So our physicians will know whether we want to know it or not. I mean, you know, exactly you know, who is going to come be diagnosed with name the disease in the mm-hmm. next five years, say diabetes. We'll have, you know, drug efficacy. We'll have AI augmented medicine where physicians will be, you know, Will, their diagnoses will be augmented by, you know, uh, supported by artificial mm-hmm. intelligence that makes diagnosis uh, and medical protocols increasingly accurate. And as tailored as tailored drugs, like if you had the flu and I had the flu, we might take different medications or or doses based on our bodies, Gen- our, our, our genome, yeah. our, our genome, absolutely. And so, but precision medicine, but AI and IoT changes everything about the way. Products and services are designed. Products and services are delivered. I mean, let's look at Amazon versus Walmart. Yeah. I mean, here's Amazon, with which is AI and IoT on steroids in the consumer packaged goods business, with a market capitalization today greater than Walmart, with, I think, one-fifth of the revenue. I mean, if, you're, I mean, if Walmart doesn't wake up, they're gone. Let's, let's take another example of Amazon. There's discussions in the media of Amazon going into the pharmaceutical business. Yeah. Well, Amazon goes and, in, and health insurance. If Amazon goes into the pharmaceutical business, Walgreens, CVS, they're gone. They, Is that they, because they, of their their the efficiency of delivering, but also the, how much they know about us? Because we have the we have the Echo, we have the Amazon Fire TV, we have the shopping. What, what would make that a killer with Amazon? Who's going to go stand in line at Walgreens, no. you know, to get your antibiotic or whatever it might be, or your beta blocker? When all you have to, you know, and find out that, you know, 
oh, gee, you're a day too early because mm-hmm. your insurance doesn't apply or some silly thing like this after you've, after you've been in line for 20 minutes. Yep. Uh, and, and they can tell you, well, we'll have your prescription done in you know 20 minutes if mm-hmm. you wait over there. Who's going to go do that? Well, you can just do three clicks on Amazon and they deliver it to your door the next day. Yep. So you, you mean cut by McKesson. McKesson's a $200 billion drug distribution company that I think will be out of business <laughs> if, 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 if Amazon goes into the pharmaceutical business. This is a $200 billion company disappearing from the planet. This is, um, when you look at the disruption that AI and IoT are bringing to, the, to, the, to commerce. Yeah. Since, you know, we've talked about this, but so far this century... 50% of the Fortune 500 companies have disappeared from the planet. They've all become Xerox, yeah. Kodak, Westinghouse. I mean, where are they? Next will be GE. GE is about to vaporize yeah. into thin air. Um, I think IBM is at risk. But we look at these companies like Tesla. I mean, what's Tesla? AI and IoT on yeah. wheels, and right? And batteries, computer, uh, uh, rolling, uh, rolling computer. And, you know, it's... Absolutely upending the automotive business. I don't know what the future of Tesla is. I don't know whether Tesla will be a successful company or not, but it will most certainly transform the automotive industry. And companies that don't adopt that model, they're gone. (laughs) And you you started as a power – C3 started as a power company and – or in the energy space, I should say, not power company, in the energy space. And a lot of your work is with the smart grid. You know, we're spending $2 trillion moving onto this grid. I mean, obviously, energy is so important in terms of national security, in terms of pollution, in terms of people's you know, lifestyles. Is this smart grid just really improving our energy efficiency when once it's up and running across the globe? Is this going to make a giant change in the environment and in national security and in, in pollution? Yes. In other words, we can use the – by taking the signals that are emitted from all of these sensors in the grid infrastructure, everything from – Phaser measurement units to uh, transformers, substations, reclosers, capacitance banks, load, um, weather, terrain. Uh, we, we, we can aggregate those data and apply machine learning to optimize the, um, the efficiency of the grid infrastructure to bring about a 33% efficiency in the sense of, say, mm-hmm. 33% less fuel to operate it. Uh, we have it, it's more resilient, it's more secure, it doesn't fail, it's not subject to cyber attack, and it reduces the greenhouse gas footprint by say fifty percent. Thirty-three percent. We're talking about giant numbers here: giant coal and oil and solar. And this is a mass. Taking a third out of that chunk is just incredible, right? The numbers. It's huge. It's huge. But just volt var alone. Volt var is a is an AI IoT problem. That, that, that solves the problem in operating the grid that they have today where voltage and reactive voltage are out of phase. And because re, re, voltage and reactive voltage are out of phase, they have to burn 8% more energy to fuel the grid infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Just by solving that problem alone, by bringing voltage and reactive voltage into phase, there's 8% less fuel that gets consumed to power the grid mm-hmm. infrastructure. Hey, that's 8% less coal in China overnight. Mm-hmm. Get your mind around this. And we'll be right back after this quick break. Support for the Forbes interview podcast comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, the mortgage company that decided to ask, why? Why can't clients get approved in minutes rather than weeks? Why can't they make adjustments to the rate and term in real time? And why can't there be client-focused technological mortgage revolution? 
Quicken Loans answered all these questions and more with Rocket Mortgage. Rocket Mortgage gives you the confidence you need when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. Whether you're looking to buy your first home or your tenth, with Rocket Mortgage, you get a transparent online process that gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Apply simply, understand fully, mortgage confidently. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash Forbes, equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org number 3030. And the Forbes interview podcast is brought to you by Amica Auto, Home, and Life Insurance. When you call Amica, you can expect a different experience because Amica is all about customer service that goes above and beyond the ordinary. You always get the help you need when you call Amica. Visit meetamica.com slash Forbes today. Your personal history is incredible. We've known each other for a while, and you were gen- one of my favorite stories I ever did was it, back in the day. It was called As Told To, where I just listened, and you told me this incredible story life-changing story in many ways of um, of your trip to Africa and that accident. I want to hear – tell me about that for a minute because I want to hear this story. And you tell it so so well and it's it's really comes alive. Well, in 2009, in the summer of 2009, my wife and daughters wanted to go on safari to Africa. So we arranged for a safari in Tanzania and we flew over there, which is just about exactly the other side of the planet. Mm-hmm. And uh, went to Tanzania and spent a few days riding around in a Range Rover the way that you do, looking at wildebeest and zebras and all the, you know, just hundreds of thousands of millions of, you know, animals that are running around the Serengeti. And after a few days, um, my wife and daughters wanted to take a break. And one of the um, amenities that they featured at this facility was walking safari. Mm -hmm. So I asked our guide, Lee, I said, Lee, do do you think we could take a walking safari tomorrow? And he said, no problem, Mr. Siebel. Meet me for coffee at 6.30. And if you've been to one of these camps in the Serengeti, I mean, the Serengeti is not a very pretty place. There's really no trees. There's no relief. It's just kind of a big desert with a few mud holes. And uh, it's a tented camp, and so we... We had kind of outdoor breakfast and we're having coffee. And Lee explains to me that, you know, he'll be carrying a double barrel 470 rifle mm-hmm. to protect us. And I was armed with a Nikon camera. <laughs> and uh, he explained that as we get out there, he says, Mr. Siebel, it's very important that, you know, if we get charged by an animal, you don't run. Because if you run, we're going to get hurt. Mm. Okay, got it. So I'm not going to run. So we go out about... I would say we walked about 12 minutes. It's just daybreak. There's not a breath of wind, and the sun is just coming up, and we come upon a herd of about 15 elephants about 200 meters away. Mm-hmm. And there was a stand of trees over there, were just, and the, the elephant were you know, ripping branches off of trees the way they do. And we just stood there and watched them. And I would say of the 15 elephants, perhaps there were half adults and half juveniles. And after just a few minutes of watching... All of a sudden, this one large matriarch elephant, you know, she gets back on her haunches and her her, her trunk goes up and her mm. ears go back, and she just bellowed. And she might have, and it was deafening. And then you could say to see her kind of focus in on us, and all of a sudden, we have, you know, five tons of raging elephant coming at us at, you know, 30 miles an hour. Wow. Well, 
thirty you know two hundred meters goes pretty fast at thirty miles an hour. I know they're that, they're that fast. That's and, incredible. Uh, so they're, they're 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 fast. So this thing is booking towards us, and it gets to fifty you know one hundred and fifty yards, hundred yards. The guy's standing about ten yards in front of me. Guy doesn't shoot. Seventy yards, sixty yards, fifty yards. Guy doesn't shoot. Forty yards, thirty yards, twenty yards. This is starting to get a little concerning. Yeah. The, the guide shoots 10 yards and misses. And the elephant then comes up and wraps her tusk around him. And I can just hear the air can cuss out of this guy's body. And she just hurls him. And he gets tossed about 12 yards away. What are you thinking at this point? It's very surreal. You don't know what to think. You, the, 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 you really don't have a place in your mind for a raging elephant, for, you know, for a charging <laughs> elephant. I mean, there's not a there's not a spot to put that idea. You know, you, there's not a bin to store it. It's not like something you're familiar with: yes. a car, an ice cream cone, a friend, a building. It's it, it, it's 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 very surreal. So all of a sudden, this elephant comes charging up. And with 18 inches of me, it just comes to a dead stop. Wow. So I'm standing there, and there's no point in running. They move too fast. Yeah. And you remember, you'll recall that I had most instructions not to run. And, you know, I'm standing there staring, you know, the order of five tons of elephant, you know, straight in the eye. And this thing is huge. And I can, to this day, I can see it. I can smell it. I can see the eyeball, the hoof. The foot, the trunk, the hair follicle. And it was, okay, fine. What are we going to do now? Yeah. Wow. So then the elephant knocked me to the ground and you know, punched me, rolled me, put a tusk through uh, my, my left leg, uh, stepped on my right leg. My foot came off. Um, and I was just getting rolled. Wait, your, your foot came off? My foot came off, yeah. My, my foot came off my leg. Oh, my gosh. And uh, it was still hanging on by like two tendons and a flap gotcha. of skin. Yeah, yeah. But it was, yeah. but it was let's say, loosely uh, attached. And um, I was taking hits like you can't believe. And I remember I was, I was holding on my head, trying to protect my head, not that it would have made any difference had I been kicked in the head. And I remember thinking, you know, I mean, I'm telling you, these hits hurt, okay? I mean... Oh, it's, it, a, it, it's an elephant. I, can, I can't I imagine mean, anything that hurts you, more. You just can't imagine how much it hurt. And I remember thinking to myself, it was like, please, God, make this stop. Mm -hmm. And candidly, I didn't really care how it stopped, but I knew I couldn't do it anymore. Look up. Dust is settled. Elephant's gone. And then I uh, see now about 20 yards away, because I had been moved a ways, the guide is over there lying down, playing dead, lying on <laughs> top of a loaded double-barrel 470 rifle. Yep. This guy, could he was a coward. He could yep. have gotten seven shots off in this time frame. So I remember saying, Lee, you know, this might be a real good time to reload that rifle. Yeah. So he does that and gets in the radio, and they surrounded me with a group of, with a number of vehicles. They, from the lot, people came in from the lodge. They surrounded me with a bunch of vehicles, and I lay there in the Serengeti for three and a half hours. Oh, my gosh. And um, I have to say, my foot was detached. My left leg was flayed open. I was clearly critically injured. But, you know, it wasn't as painful as you might think. Shock really works well. You know, shock is a, is a, is a, is, you know, a very effective analgesic. Hmm. So the other thing that was kind of surprising is I wasn't gushing blood. I was going to say, I mean, you're on the, in the Serengeti for yeah. three hours. Yeah. Wild. Yeah. And it, it was, I mean, I was bleeding, but I wasn't gushing blood as you would have thought. And this was even with an artery severed. So shock, as you know, 
cuts off the circulation to your appendages. And it's pretty amazing. And it really has a very significant analgesic effect. I wasn't that much pain. <laughs> so I lay there for three and a half hours. Then they brought in a, a, a medic team from Nairobi. I was moved to a pickup truck, pickup truck to the back of a Cessna. Jesus. Cessna. Those are bumpy rides with your all that stuff going on. Think. Uh, oh, man. Cessna to, to Nairobi. You want to be scared? Have, you know, I went to the Aga Khan Hospital in, in Nairobi. You want to be scared? Have surgery in Nairobi. Oh my, yeah, you, were, you were exactly at Stanford Medical Center. This is, I mean, they have cats in the floor of the operating room. Uh, from there, I airlifted to San Jose 20 hours. I think they gave me all the morphine in Kenya, which was 10 hours worth. No. And uh, so the last 10 hours of the flight were pretty long. And then after I landed in San Jose, I spent the next three years uh, in basically having 19 reconstructive surgeries and walked about three and a half years later. And so it was a a character-building experience. I don't recommend it. I don't have any need to go back to Africa. Uh, And, uh, you know, it's nice to have it behind me. And today I am, you know, 100, I am in significantly better physical shape today than I was uh, in on August 1st, 2009 when this happened. And uh, that this foot here that's, it, that is attached to my right leg is my foot, and it's my it's leg. Back on. Yep. There were many physicians, surgeons, who proposed to uh, that the only solution was to amputate the leg. Wow. And I would just explain to them that we had no need to talk anymore yep. and thank them very much for their service and go find another surgeon. So then finally I found a surgeon who was able to make it work. Incredible. What was, I mean, your poor, your, I mean, your poor wife and daughters are witnessing this. Were they, they think you were going to, they were going to lose you? What, what was kind of that family dynamic during the, the trip back and, and everything? You know, they weren't there when the attack took place. My mm-hmm. wife came out, okay. They, they did go bring her out from the lodge after the attack when I was in the Serengeti. But I was in and out of intensive care for some time. And I think it was a little bit concerning. I did. I mean, there was an upside to this. Is I spent the better part of three years at home. And while I was in, an invalid, I had a young daughter at the time who mm-hmm. was a, I, I, she was, I would say, about 10 years old at the time. And uh, we became quite close. Mm-hmm. We spent, got to spend quite a bit of time together as I, you know, rehabilitated and went through surgeries. And so that was, an upside was it was that my, my daughter and Hunter and I became, you know, very close during that mm-hmm. time because we spent a lot of time together. Oh, by the way, did, what happened with the guide and the elephant? Did he eventually shoot the elephant or? Well, I would not, they did not shoot the elephant. The elephant got away. I think shooting the guide might have been appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, the, the guide, I think, is in another line of business. Mm-hmm. And I'm not certain what he's doing, but he was a coward and he should be ashamed of himself. Well, and this is fascinating because you literally cheated death. You have like, you know, you kind of were in a way reborn with an elephant attack. And I can only imagine what that does on your outlook on life. And fortunately at this time, you know, you were, you were very, you were, you didn't have to worry about money. You could do whatever you wanted to. Um, did you kind of ponder during, during the rehabilitation, like obviously you're focusing on saving your legs, saving your foot, getting better. But did that kind of change your, your motivation? Did that change your outlook at all? Because um, you're, you're working your butt off with this, this C3 company, where you could you could do whatever you want, and you've decided to you know dedicate yourself and many hours to this. Like, what what was kind of 
what was your mindset afterwards? And has it changed your philosophy at all before the attack and after the attack? That's a great question. And the answer is yes. Uh, so when I was in, going in, uh, in intensive care, uh, there were many things going on in my life, and I had been involved in you know many activities um, prior to that time. I used to play a lot of golf, I used to do a lot of team roping, a lot of active sailor, um, I'm a pilot, I run businesses. I was running at the time, I think, about 10 different foundations. And so we had a lot, a lot going on, and, and I really did think and prioritize that if I got through this, you know, how I was going to spend my time. And I took about 70% of those activities and just drew a line through them and said, I'm not going to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, I was an avid golfer. I really enjoyed it. It just took up too much time. I said, I'm not going to play golf, no. so I don't do that. You stopped golfing. I just did cold turkey, stopped golf. And uh, at the time, cold turkey, I stopped flying. And uh, so I was a very active pilot. I just stopped flying, and I did started to focus on a few things that I really enjoyed, a few foundations. Um, uh, I decided I'm a reasonably competent sailor, and I mm-hmm. enjoy that. It's this, this is something that I want to focus on. And then there's this effort with C3. I decided to focus on that. This is I enjoy building companies. I enjoy assembling teams of very bright people. I solve. I enjoy solving. You know difficult technical and business problems. So it's something I enjoy. So this is, I'm obviously not doing this to make money. Yes. And this but is my you, idea of you a are, good time. You are making money, but you're, you're, this is a passion play for you. I think that, I think a lot of wealth will be created for a lot of people. Uh, most importantly, our customers. I, I think we will have a positive impact on the world when we're done. I hope so. And we'll be right back after this quick break. This year, the office cubicle turns 50 years old. It hails from an age when work was done on typewriters and smoking at your desk was the norm. Today, employees are expecting more from their workspace. They want flexible and active spaces where they can collaborate and feel energized. Veridesk Active Workspace solutions make it easy to encourage more movement to any workday. Being more active at work, like standing more and sitting less, can help improve your health, boost energy, and increase productivity. Veridesk has a variety of desk solutions that replace traditional office setups, require little to no assembly, and are ready to use in minutes. Plus, Veridesk products are made from commercial-grade materials meant to last a lifetime. They're easy to move or reconfigure as businesses change and grow. You can try Veridesk risk-free for 30 days with free shipping and free returns. If you're not satisfied, see it for yourself at veridesk.com. That's V-A-R-I-Desk.com. When you're wearing the right outfit, it feels good. Like good hair day kind of good. Phone charge to 100% good. Getting dressed can feel just like that when you have a trunk club stylist. Because not only do we send you lots of outfits and accessories, we also teach you how to style them. And since we're a Nordstrom company, you know you'll be well taken care of. Look and feel great every single day with Trunk Club. Meet your personal stylist at trunkclub.com. That's T-R-U-N-K-C-L-U-B dot com. Has recovering from the attack, has it made you a, a better CEO and has kind of helped you... Um, kind of realize, okay, this something that might have stressed you out or annoyed you before, you realize it kind of rolls off your back now, or like, this is like something that seemed stressful, or this is pressure before, and now seems like not a big deal from what you've been through? Oh, it, it, I would say that's, that's very insightful. So, on my desk, uh, in uh, encased in a lucite cube, 
are the shreds of the iPhone that was in my pocket when the when it was impacted when I took a tusk through mm-hmm. that leg and the iPhone just exploded. Wow. Okay, so we have a basically explosion of it through a piece of modern art, you know, on <laughs> my desk. An explosion of an i i i I actually be an iPhone. Did Steve Jobs give you a, a new no, one No, Steve free? didn't even send me a new phone. I was really shocked. <laughs> okay, and, then, and on the wall of my office, sometimes hopefully you'll visit, there's a very large photo, say, oh, almost four feet square, mm-hmm. of a charging, you know, raging charging elephant. And, and, and it's there, you know, to remind me to put things, you know, I put things into perspective. You know, every now and then there'll be someone in your office or, you know, a reader or somebody on the phone who is, you know, going to explain, you know, what damage they're going to do to you, mm-hmm. you know, financially or in business or whatever it might be. And you can just go to look at the photo and kind of smile and, you know, then look down at the phone and think, you know, you got nothing. Yeah, unless, you, know, you, unless you have a pet yeah. elephant, I'm not, I'm not scared. Give me your best shot. You got, <laughs> you got nothing. Well, there's nothing you can do. You've been through technology for, you know, you're vet- four, four decades. Four decades. Four decades. And you worked with, you, you, you worked a lot with, um, Oracle and Larry Ellison. Then you went off and started Siebel Systems, which is more of a, a software, you know, kind of people play, right? How, tell me about the difference between what's changed in the last four decades. I mean, between everything, but is starting a business now totally different than when you were starting Siebel, or is it kind of the, still the same playbook, just different different tools and different different scale? Oh, I think everything has changed. So I did my graduate work in relational database theory. So the relational database technology was something I was reasonably uh, comfortable with. And yes, so that's old, kind of old school database oracles. Yeah. So that, that, that is the technology that Oracle, that's the business Oracle was in. It was the relational database business. And mm-hmm. this is how they got started. That's the business they built. And so when I went to Oracle, there were about 20 people there and it was just a startup. And uh, that was, um, you know, back then you're dealing with baby boomers and you're mm-hmm. dealing with new technology. And this is in the early 80s? Yeah, this is about 1983. Okay. And that when I went to work for Oracle, and it is not exactly 1983. Mm-hmm. And then a decade later, we started Siebel Systems, and Siebel was about So Oracle was really about taking advantage of the advance of mini computers, mm-hmm. the deck vacs. At Siebel, we took advantage of a new step function in technology that, come, that became available in uh, the early to mid-90s, and this was small form factor computing, broad bandwidth communications, high-speed relational database technology, and very importantly, with the introduction of Windows 95, graphical mm-hmm. user interface technology. That changed everything. So this is taking advantage of basically everyone, every professional having a desktop on their desk. Right, and, and broad bandwidth communications mm-hmm. and high-speed relational database yep. systems. And graphical user interfaces, very, very important graphical user interfaces. And so we took that step function of technology and applied it to the value chain of sales, marketing, and customer service, mm-hmm. which had been largely untouched by information technology yep. as of 1993, and created the market that's known today as CRM. Mm-hmm. Well, that turned out to be a pretty good idea. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, six years later, Siebel was, I think, we had 8,000 employees in 29 countries. Wow. We were doing greater than $2 billion in re- annual revenue. It had a market valuation of $53 billion as a public company. And that's when $53 billion was still a lot of money. So <laughs> now it's like walking around money. Oh, yeah. It's pocket change. Okay, so now 
as we approach, as we power into the 21st century, there's another step function of technology that, that is coming, that is, that is changing the landscape of information and mm-hmm. communication technology. And this step function of technology includes um, elastic cloud computing, AI, and IoT. And it changes everything. So mm-hmm. we're riding, so, our, so for the third time, our timing is lucky, okay? We're in the right place at the right time just before this tsunami happens. And we'll look at the expected market for software in big data, AI, and IoT. This is expected to be a $250 billion software market in 2023. $250 billion software market. That would be larger than the entire information technology market globally when I went to Oracle. That's crazy, yeah. Okay, 1983, which for many of the listeners is... Seems like a long time ago, but, you know, yeah, I assure you, it isn't. Um, now, what's changed about running a business? Everything has changed. See, it used to be simple. In the 80s, in the 90s, your workforce was primarily baby boomers. Mm-hmm. And baby boomers are very easy to manage. All you have to do is put a, you know, everybody in school studies Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and we all know what those do, what that looks like. They think that's what motivates people. Well, that's not true. Yeah. What, what motivates baby boomers is the comp plan, okay? Whatever it says in the comp plan, they do. Yep. Okay? You put the comp plan in front of them, they're going to go chew holes through walls to do it. They you know, will work 18 hours a day. They just, they're just they very easy to understand, very easy to motivate. Yes, they want, okay, here are the goals. If you hit these goals, you're going to get paid. Bingo. Yep. Okay, and it, it was simple. Yeah. Uh, now, today, we have workforce that consists of baby boomers, Generation Xers and Millennials, mm-hmm. okay, and they're all highly trained. They're all gifted. I mean, these are gifted people with entirely different sets of motivation. They all have different motivators. They think differently. They behave differently. They want to accomplish different things, and they want to use their skills in different ways. Give me the breakdown. Well, I, it, in it, super broad terms, obviously. I mean, it, it, it's just much more complex. It's, mm-hmm. it, it's not simple. And, and you have to deal with the with the you know the complexity of that fabric mm-hmm. in order to build an organization today. And so you have to be it requires a lot more sensitivity, a lot more thought about human capital, a lot more thought. You know, the idea of building an organization, uh, a high performance organization of you know people from all these different generations. Okay, now, and, and even increasingly, they have different cultures. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, people from everywhere. People from all over the world. They're from India. They're from China. They're from, you know, they're from, you know, they're from South America. They're from Africa. They're, from, you know, the, the Europeans, Americans, yep. and you, it, all these different motivators. So it's much more complex. It's much more interesting. It's actually much more rewarding, yeah. but I think it's harder. So you mentioned, just really quick, you mentioned the, you know, boomers just wanted a comp table and salaries. And what is... What does the average millennial care about? Obviously, salary is a big part of it, but what else? What what may, what adds to that complexity? Give me a few examples of things that surprised you. Um, in this they want to do something important. Okay, they want they want to feel like they're making a contribution. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they they you know it's, it, it, it's it's important that you know they feel that they're that they're they're contributing something positive, that there's something good coming of it. Um, and uh, you know that that's clearly very important mm-hmm. to, to that group of people. And obviously, they want they, yeah. want, they want purpose. 
Yeah, and you know, with your with your company, I assume is it the the draw that you're kind of cutting edge systems, the fact that you're you know working with these you know energy companies, making things more efficient. You're going into this healthcare space, and is that kind of really gets them going? I think well, we're we're at the leading edge of technologies that people find increasingly interesting. What's going on with AI, mm-hmm. deep learning, um, uh, elastic cloud computing, natural language processing. We're dealing with very, very large data sets and enormously difficult computational problems. So for people who are bright and want to work on really difficult problems, C3IoT is a good place. And then we're applying this. We're not doing it at a theoretical level. We're applying this in aerospace, defense, intelligence, mm-hmm. oil and gas, utilities, healthcare, travel transportation, discrete manufacturing. Across, you know, it, our customer is typically a, say, 30 to $300 billion business where we're solving problems. Every problem we're solving has never been solved before. Mm-hmm. So for people who want to work with very bright people on extraordinarily difficult problems, all of which have uh, substantial social and economic impact, C3IoT is a great place to work. Mm-hmm. How does it work in terms of in, in the actual kind of the nitty-gritty of it all? I mean, you guys develop the software. Do you license the software to, let's say, this aerospace company and they use it? Or are you almost like digital consultants where you have – you work with the executives of the aerospace company along with your tools and work out the problem together? Or is it more of a, they kind of, is it one size fit all? Or is it you guys get kind of get in the trenches with these companies and, and you know, kind of fight it out with them? Great question. Uh, it's a very good question uh, because there are lots of different middle business models mm-hmm. in this space. First of all, we spent eight years and about $300 million building a platform as a service that allows organizations to rapidly design, develop, provision, and operate um, <clears throat> software predictive um, uh, AI-based applications that allow them to capture the power of elastic cloud computing, big data, AI, and IoT. Mm-hmm. Then we license this tool set to our customer, say CAT, say 3M, uh, and now, which is a large utility, Con Ed here in New York. Yeah, I know them oh, well. <laughs> okay, okay. And then we then will work with them the first year. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll train their people on how to use this technology stack. Uh, and, and then we will work with them the first year to, say, build their first six production applications. Mm-hmm. Now, we're in the business of, we're not in the business of fishing. We're in the business of teaching people to fish. Yes. So our idea is get their team up and running, have them expert in the technology stack, and then we leave and go on to the next customer. So mm-hmm. the idea is that they can design, develop, provision, and operate these applications independent of us. There are no IP issues. They license the software, all of the all of the technology they develop, all of the machine learning classifiers, mm-hmm. all the deep learning, all the optimization systems they develop are all their IP and their secret sauce for their oil and gas business or their aerospace business or whatever. And for you, it's one year of hand-holding, then endless cash flow as long as they keep on using it'll, the services. Well, it'll be endless cash flow as long as they're successful, yes. as long as they mm-hmm. continue to meet their business objectives. So we, it's, it, it, we're not in the business of just selling somebody something and going yes, away. exactly. I mean, we have to be there forever to make sure that they succeed. Mm-hmm. We have to continue to advance the technology to take advantage of, you know, you know, where this technology is going, which is increasingly, you know, it's natural language processing becomes completely mm-hmm. uh, increasingly important as a prime, driving kind of a new type of computer 
uh, human interaction model. Um, edge computing will be increasingly important. These 50 billion devices, you know, probably 10 billion wow. of them will be doing computing yeah. on the edge. And so it's, um, you know, we have to continue to advance the technology, take advantage of new platforms, AWS, Azure, the Google Cloud, mm-hmm. Intel, and NVIDIA, GPU, clusters, what have you. Wow. And is that, cha- and that was, you said that was eight years ago. Is that, is that still the model? People just use tools, or you actually work kind of hand in hand with with the with the clients. Oh no, that's that a, still, that's it still a, continues. No, so. it's a, that's a very good question. Our business model has changed mm-hmm. dramatically. So initially, we built the platform as a service that we would use to build software when software as a service applications to meet the needs of the utility industry. So we provide software as a service applications to the utilities for mm-hmm. things like fraud detection, Volt VAR predictive maintenance for the AI-based predictive maintenance for mm-hmm. their assets in the value chain. When we became C, then we did a couple of years worth of engineering work. And when we relaunched ourselves in uh, February of 2016 as C3 IoT, we, became, I mean, we went into the business of licensing the platform gotcha. to utilities and oil and gas companies, mm-hmm. aerospace companies, uh, to allow them to, to allow them to build their own software as a service application. So when we did that, that year our business bookings increased by 600%. So it was a pretty good move. Wow. But that's a significant change in the business model that year that was, uh, you know, I think, insightful of you to catch that. Well, this has been a great talk. But before we go, give me a prediction in the IoT AI space that is going to basically shock everybody in the next, you know, five years. What's like, do you have a big, bold prediction, a big change a big development that we can look forward to? Well, I just think that, I mean, the, many of the companies that were brand names that we hear today, they will be gone. You know, possibly McKesson, possibly Walmart, possibly IBM. I think these companies will be gone, okay, because they're not in, in five years. Absolutely in five years, five to ten years. I mean, this is happening fast. Come on, in the last 17 years, okay, 50% of the Fortune 500 companies are no longer on the Fortune 500. This is, this is happening. There's a, there's a mass extinction event taking place <laughs> in the corporate world as we adopt or don't adopt these new technologies. But... You know, all of these people will be, these organizations that survive will be in the business of delighting us with, you know, products that meet our needs, services that are, you know, more attuned to what we we want. You know, things will be delivered inside our door. We won't have to, you know, go to the store and get it. I mean, it's going to be, people will live longer. They will be healthier. They will be happier. They will be more productive. The world will be a better place. That's a, I like that prediction. Um, well, this is a great show. Tom Siebel, CEO and founder of, besides Siebel Systems, obviously currently C3 IoT. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks. That's it for this episode of the Forbes interview. I'm Steve Bertoni. Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with a question or comment, please reach us at interview at podcastone.com. Hey, this is Jordan Harbinger. I used to host the Art of Charm podcast, but now it's time for something new. 
The Jordan Harbinger Show. Did you know you can be entertained and actually get a boost in your life at the same time? On this show, we dig into the superpowers of the world's most interesting thinkers and top talents. Then we deliver them to you right into your ears. But I get it. We're not all superheroes. That's why we give you their blueprint so you can live what you listen. After a thousand interviews, learning five languages, and getting arrested in a country that doesn't even exist anymore, I'm now more ready than ever to introduce you to The Jordan Harbinger Show. Listen free to The Jordan Harbinger Show, available on Apple Podcasts, PodcastOne.com, and the Podcast One app. When you're wearing the right outfit, it feels good. Like good hair day kind of good. Phone charge to 100% good. Getting dressed can feel just like that when you have a Trunk Club stylist. Because not only do we send you lots of outfits and accessories, we also teach you how to style them. And since we're a Nordstrom company, you know you'll be well taken care of. Look and feel great every single day with Trunk Club. Meet your personal stylist at trunkclub.com. That's T-R-U-N-K-C-L-U-B.com. At the border, I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is... Tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.